This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. My guest today is José Cosa, a visiting associate professor at the American University in Cairo. In the fall of 2016, he will join the faculty of Peabody College at Vanderbilt University as a senior lecturer. In today's show, José talks about his archival research on three past editors of the Comparative Education Review. He is concerned about how the field of comparative education formed and the role editors play in setting boundaries. José Cosa, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you very much, Will. Thanks for having me here. You have recently written a book chapter on shaping the intellectual landscape of the comparative and international education society. And you look at a few of the comparative education review journal editors um, and their influence on shaping the field at different times. Why did you think editors of a journal shape the intellectual field? Hi, yeah, because, the, you know, there's uh, two things. They're pretty much the almost like the gatekeepers in terms of intellectualism, uh, particularly if the editors are the editors of the key journals in that particular field. So, for instance, in this case, I was looking at Comparative Education Review as one of the main and perhaps the first journal in comparative uh, education. And so they were the people whom everybody who wanted to publish in the field would want to have their papers sent to. And in that capacity, they really look at what they're capable of uh, saying or determining what is it that counts as intellectualism in that particular field. And so that's the role that I think becomes then the role of shaping a field, because then you determine what is it that looks as adequate to be included as part of the field, as part of what discourses should be uh, important for the field and what should not be important. And so you're kind of filtering out stuff. And uh, and that's pretty much why I thought there would be uh, key people, key figures in terms of determining what needs uh, what the field needed. And so, you know, looking at the Kukite Epstein, for instance, as one of those uh, informative pieces was uh, really to lay the foundation in terms of the argument for this was the fact that they really looked at uh, you know they looked at contours and boundaries you know that that the field should have a certain certain parameters and so editors would be the people determining those parameters because they pick what constitutes what in, in terms of what a field should look like. So when was the Comparative Education Review started? Uh, I believe 1957. And the, the first editor was George Baraday? Correct, correct. So you selected George Baraday as one of the, the um, researchers or the editors that you researched. Who were the other two? Well, I also selected uh, Altbach and Epstein. So that's Philip Altbach and Erwin Epstein. And why did you select these three individuals? Well, in part because uh, my main interest was to look at the archive at uh, Kent State 
and uh, and when I initially went to the archive, I had thought about doing, uh, looking at you know many others, uh, including uh, Extin and uh, and also looking at Casamias. And I, when I got to the archives, I realized that really there was not a whole lot of material uh, pertaining to other editors, uh, and so these three editors had a lot more material that was, you know, worth looking at and including in this uh, in this study. So it was pretty much the limitation was based on the availability of material, what files I could find. So let's talk about the first person. We'll go in chronological order. So the first person that um, you studied was George Baraday. So how did George Baraday shape the field of comparative and international education? Or I guess it was known then as comparative education. Yeah, uh, Baraday was more of the uh, looking at the field more in the scientific way. In his mind, what scientific really meant was what the natural sciences uh, might have thought of scientific. So that's, he wanted to really create a certain of a, of a field that could somehow match that sort of epistemological uh, approach to knowledge. And so he, you know, he really fought to to create that and then made decisions very much based upon what he deemed to be uh, methodologically sound uh, that had you know followed all the methods of uh, the regular you know natural sciences you know all the problems and, and the hypotheses testing and all this kind of thing so he was very much of you know leading leaning more towards that kind of scholarship and that's why he's uh, and th this was more because he wanted to filter out uh, certain kinds of things like very descriptive material. And so he thought that creating a science, basically making comparative education a science, then would be, in the, in the sense of the very traditional way of looking at science, right, uh, would be much more uh, plausible and, and even make the field gain more merit around scholars and and you know, amongst other fields, so to really to assert its place in in education, in in social sciences, and everything else. So, what sort of examples um, can you give of of articles that he rejected as not being scientific enough? Well, there there were several uh, articles he rejected, but I will. Uh, you know, say this. In in some instances, th to to just make it make this also a little bit clearer is that even though he was attempting really at creating this science around comparative education or making comparative education a very scientific field, he was still really walking, uh, kind of really trying to figure this out. He, he had not really nailed it because in many ways uh, he stumbled over his own decisions, his own, uh, you know, his own uh, idea of what exactly this should look like, because, in, you know, in, in rejecting articles that were, that he considered to be uh, not scientific, they're not, you know, they don't really fit adequate 
uh, scholarly analysis and so on, he many times also ended up accepting and even commissioning uh, or inviting scholars to write very descriptive materials. And, uh, and so that having been said, there's a lot of a lot in Verdey that you know he didn't really always always meet his own expectation of uh, of just being you know this uh, you know having the field is very scientific. Uh, for instance, he you know he had requested an article from Walter Merck, uh, and this was in 1957, uh, you know to for him to write a work that would describe the work in comparative education in Hamburg. Now that in itself it just speaks about description. It was really, you know, he, he says, you know, you have to write, an, in, and in his own words, says to write on any comparative subject that you feel disposed to treat. Uh, and so this was very much, uh, in, in things like recent developments in German education as a whole, a description of the present work in pedagogy at the university level, and it was really he was interested in, in description too, but in many ways, I don't think he really was aware at times that he was doing this. And so that's one one example. But he he would reject uh, things, you know, articles like a particular manuscript in which he rejected it as, you know, he he called it very much on technical merits, and uh, and that you know it was based on one country study and he would reject articles that he thought oh this is just a mere description of events and uh, you know you you know you can't you can't just write about the united states you can't just write about you know brazil you can't just write about nigeria for instance uh, i recall this article that he rejected and it had to do with nigeria and uh, he said that the article was addressed to Nigerians and that he felt that it should be published in Nigeria. I mean, a statement like that doesn't cut today. Uh, you know, he also rejected one on Brazil, almost very much in the same sort, you know, with the same kinds of mindset that it is a Brazilian article and it's definitely not uh, suitable for comparative education. So, but the German one that he commissioned was was suitable, even though that also could have been, you know, published in a German publication. Absolutely, it was very German, was very descriptive, uh, and really, uh, it was even of a lesser quality, if I may, uh, than these other ones. Uh, the Brazilian article he rejects it and says that. Uh, because this was a struggle against the Brazilian public school, and he says, you know, his whole ar argument was that it, having it has, it was written for the Brazilian audience. It is naturally because it was written for the Brazilian audience, it was naturally more exhortative in nature, and so we are interested in descriptive and analytical articles. So he has, he kept, he kept going back and forth around these things of. Uh, what should be, what should the field really look like? But this is very, I mean, it's very characteristic of anybody who's trying to figure out these boundaries. I mean, you negotiate uh, with yourself, particularly if you are pretty much a, a one-person show, uh, as Birdie in many ways was. Uh, they were. He didn't have any. He had no editorial he team. He had an editorial team, but they were all his buddies. So I mean, it's uh, it's not, it's not really. You know, it's like I just pick up the people that I think are 
the best people to work with me, of course they'll say yes. I mean, in many ways, most of those people are not going to, you know, be much of a voice. So, and all, and and also the competitive education uh, board, the CR board, was established like three years after the journal was established. So, for three years, you had a lot of leeway, you know, to do exact, you know, whatever he wanted to do to define, to shape the field in the way that he thought the field should be. So, you know, and, and it was pretty much, it was him and, and Reed and his uh, very close buddy, Reed. So they both did whatever they wanted. And, and Verde, as the editor, uh, pretty much uh, had a lot, of, uh, a lot of freedom. And so having, when the board is established, the board is established under that kind of a culture in which he has uh, the say, the last say in this. So it, it was, it took a while, you know, for, uh, yeah, I mean, it would take a while for anybody to, who comes on board in a situation like this to actually get to a point of being able to be heard. Uh, and I'm not saying Baraday was not a good listener or anything like that, but it's a culture you develop. I mean, if you, a habits that you develop when you work on your own, and then all of a sudden you have to work in a team, you know, it's, it's not easy. So, so he was like a very powerful gatekeeper that used a lot of his own personal preferences to shape the field. Absolutely. And can you tell us a little bit about um, the teachers who used to go on these study tours that the Comparative Education Society ran at that time in the, ni- in the 1950s and 1960s? What, what did Baraday do with these teachers? So he would send, uh, well, it was just Reed and him, would send a team to, you know, Soviet Union, for instance, to go and do studies. And they, his idea or their idea was really that they, these travelers, as they call them, should only concentrate on presenting eyewitness accounts. They were not to be uh, coming back and writing this material as scholarly articles because they were not scholars, you know. So, because Verde had a very clear idea in his mind about what a scholar should be like. So, he needed this this material for the field mostly as eyewitness accounts, and that's pretty much like the pay, right? I mean, you uh, it's like sending your students uh, abroad and saying collect data and then come back and when you come back I will write the article you don't write the article because uh, or somebody else will write the article and th- that somebody else has to be a specialized scholar so the teachers never got any credit on any of the publications that came out of their eyewitness accounts on these study tours not according to the letters it, it didn't give me that impression at all you know, it could have been you know, one or the other could have slipped through, but uh, I did not see that in the letters. Uh, so the evidence pointed really in, in, to the, in this direction, according to his very, very, very words, that it needed to be written by specialized uh, scholars. So, and this, you know, seemed uh, like a very fitting kind of decision because, you know, he was somehow guarding the field, wanting to make sure that uh, there was no description-only kind of accounts and it wasn't romanticized kinds of things. So he wanted to have a hand in and, and a say in everything that happened around it as he, as he tried to shape it. 
uh, it's not to justify his position but to just throw in a, a little perspective here that he, he was in that kind of a, he put himself in that kind of position and he was in that position perhaps you know it was the time in which he lived but uh, but yeah he was very careful about that so he didn't want anybody writing stuff so they were like data collectors so let's let's turn to Philip Altbach, who started editing the Journal of Comparative Education Review in 1979. How did Philip Altbach shape the field? So Altbach had uh, had to somehow continue the works of uh, of Noah and Casimirs, and who were also trying to continue the work of Verdi. So particular Noah was very much in the in that building of what Verdi had already established, you know, the scientific and so on. And and up to you know and then Casimirs came on board. I didn't find much about Casimirs in terms of actual uh, correspondence. I mean there were uh, there was a lot of material there but it wasn't relevant to what I was doing so it really didn't give him any insight as far as how he actually evaluated the material which which gave me also the impression that so from Baraday to to uh, to Noah to Outback I still had I had not found anything that really talked about how they evaluated this material so Baraday had established this very haphazard random kind of way of looking at the field but at the same time having a very fixed idea in his mind and in the minds of those whom he invited about what the field should look like. So Alba takes that and he looks at what he develops what's called at this point he adopts or develops something called this manuscript evaluation form and that's when I began to realize okay so now the field as far as editorial ship, now we're getting something, getting into something here. This is a sort of a criteria becoming established as to what exactly it is that should be the measurement for accepting or rejecting articles. No longer how I feel about it, but at least there's something, you know, this, this manuscript evaluation form. And, and this had instructions for reviewers to type their evaluations and to sign it. And then dated, so that gave you know at least you have something tangible now to look at and say okay so this article was rejected, but based on a particular evaluation uh, form that was filled and this is how it you know the evaluation was conducted this is what the the actual uh, the evaluators were thinking about it so he really wasn't so much driven into the methodology and so on but he was more a structure person he wanted to build more structure into this uh, this field into the acceptance rejection modes of articles uh, so that perhaps any other editor that came after him would have something to work with uh, no longer you know this is how I feel about the article but here's how we evaluate the articles that we receive. So that's you know that's how I see Alpac's contribution as a, uh, there, there was not really a lot of a lot more to this uh, a lot more than this you know in the in the correspondences that I saw. What what sort of um, criteria was on the evaluation form? Uh, there, there was a 
so there was reference to the to the evaluation form more than actual actual evaluation form. This was uh, the the limitation is that uh, you know so the the whole idea that the journal should still continue to be rooted in this met methodological rigor uh, and and a bit more of theory you know that there has to be theory in each one of the articles that are submitted. Uh, so it's um, it wasn't a lot it, and and there's also another another idea in the that was included in this evaluation was the concern for data interpretation and presentation of data. So it wasn't like a very meticulous structure, a very meticulous kind of form, but it was a form to orient the writers to understand that there is limitation in length of articles and that there's also that if you presenting anything as data, you have to interpret it and how you present it also matters. So it was really this kind of orientation wasn't uh, anything as we would probably look at uh, criteria today, but, but it was a very, uh, like a really huge step forward in that, you know, not only methods mattered, uh, but also a little bit of theory mattered, uh, not so much, but a little bit of theory mattered. And, uh, and that, you know, the articles have to follow a particular length and they had, you know, to have interpretation of data and presentation. So that's pretty much what the, the criteria was. After Philip Altbach um, came Erwin Epstein, and Epstein edited the journal from 1989 until 1998, so a good 10 years. What or how did Erwin Epstein shape the field of comparative education? So uh, Epstein builds on what Altbach had began. So Altbach has the, the now this evaluation form, but Altbach also did something interesting, which was the diversity in the in the field uh, in terms of even the the editors themselves and uh, and so his editorial board. Uh, before this, you know, the field was very monolithic. I mean, it was very much uh, macho. It's you know, males dominating the field, and, it, and as you can imagine, it was white American males and, and some European males. So it wasn't really very, it wasn't diverse at all in, in terms of uh, in many ways it wasn't diverse. So Albuck now begins to bring some gender diversity in and specialization too. You know. So, because he's not caught up in the whole idea of the field becoming scientific, so there's now a little bit more of diversity in specialization and methodology. And so Epstein carries, it, carries on from there, and, uh, and he moves beyond the evaluation form now to, to really creating this, uh, this, this more of a criteria to evaluate the articles on the basis of very specific things like originality, relevance to comparative education, the use of data, uh, the, you know, if the article has used any data or not, it has to be clear that. So the clarity of expression that the articles have to be written in a very cogent manner, manner and uh, contribution to the advancement of knowledge. So it, this is something that we see 
I mean, to this day, this kind of tendency towards looking at these elements of originality, uh, relevance to the field and use of data and clarity of expression and contribution to advancement of knowledge. And, uh, and so that's how Epstein really comes in. And he also introduces uh, these double-blind peer reviews, which were not there before, and now you begin to see it in a more clear way. That uh, you know, and, and and for instance, one of the things that happened was uh, that one article had slipped slip through uh, this evaluation, and the name had been put in there, so had left had been left there, uh, and so the reviewers basically knew who wrote the article, and and that jeopardized the review process. This is seen at least based on my assessment of the lattice for the first time in the, in the comparative education review where something like this actually trans, you know, appears as, as problematic that you, know, you actually know who's writing the article as, as a reviewer. So his correspondence with Gail Kelly uh, in 1989 or so uh, kind of gave that impression that now they're taking things very seriously and this double blind peer review becomes a critical step towards the future of the field. Uh, so it's no longer whether I know you or not. And, and if I know you or not, uh, I mean, it doesn't matter. It's what it is that you've written, and if it follows the criteria, then we will go from there. Um, obviously not a perfect point in the history of the field, but a good leaning towards prog you know, progress or towards where we are today. Uh, it's a clear example of, of the power shifting from what was under Baraday, where he seemed to have total control over what was in and out of the journal, to now kind of pushing that power to the blind reviewers, the people who are reading these articles, not knowing who anyone is, and making an evaluation based on some set of criteria. It seems like that would take power away from the editor in some ways. Absolutely. It is a shift of power. Uh, and, and the, you know, it's, it's also, you know, now you have a diversity of uh, scholars uh, from various parts of uh, of uh, in different different areas in the field, different interests, different methodologies, and so uh, if you have a blind review, it becomes and also trying to balance that those powers, it becomes a bit more uh, interesting. The kinds of stuff that that transpire in the paper no longer monolithic, no longer just the stuff that uh, you know your buddies in a club would like to read, but everybody that is actually interested in this thing called comparative and international education will actually find something in there for them for them to read. Uh, the other thing that he also did that that appears during Epstein's time was this uh, engagement with ideology. Uh, you know, in the past there was never I, I don't I didn't see any evidence of ideology being an issue that really merited a lot of in, of uh, of attention as far as problematizing ideology in the field. So Epstein brings that into the field and, and looking at it uh, in terms of how it relates to epistemological and ontological orientations. Now Epstein has a very uh, strong training in the positivist tradition and coming into this place where he also encounters other people and in this space of uh, a comparative education as a field that is changing from the Baraday errors 
you know to uh, to the Noah era and now you know his time in which the field has become so much more complex I believe that he you know this shift is not something that I've seen just came up one day woke up and said well I'm gonna uh, begin to look at ideology as problematic but it's something that really it should be credited to the advancements in the field that people at that point were beginning to think critically about what's happening in the world so looking at ideology and how stuff like epistemological and ontological orientations were really embedded in these things became very critical for his editorship that you know to this date we're talking about epistemologies I mean at some point we forgot about this stuff but now we're kind of uh, resurrecting these conversations and this was stuff that was happening in, in the uh, in the 1980s having researched the history of some of these editors what do you make of the field today? Well, the field is still far from being where I think it should be. You know, I mean, we are uh, this editors contributed tremendously to the field, and we can learn a lot from them. Uh, and if we, you know, one of the things that I think the field today could really benefit from is having this. Uh, these developments, you know, based on these editors and these shapers of the field, uh, having this, uh, having them in pers- keeping them in perspective as we move along, because some of these conversations they had were very deep, were very intellectual. Uh, they were not just about practice, but they were also about theory. They were also about methodology. They were also about what really shapes a field, what really characterizes and differentiates a field, differentiates a field. What I see today is that we are we're struggling with that. We don't, uh, you know, sometimes I say to people, well, if I can submit an article to the Comparative and, and International Education and submit it to another society and another, and another conference and another conference, I mean, if the same article can be submitted in all these conferences, what makes my article really a Comparative uh, and International Education article or, or in terms of even submitting not just uh, articles, but I'm talking about papers for conferences. What is it that distinguishes this from everything else? And I think that's what Verde was fighting for. I mean, trying to make a distinction, and and then it was built on, you know, with Noah and and uh, and Casimir's and uh, Casimir is still talking about the soul of the field being lost today. I think you've heard that somewhere if you go to conferences, you know. So there's there was this passion for something. Uh, in, about this field that had to be different to, to differentiate this field from others. And I don't think we have really gotten, I mean, we have, uh, I think we have, you know, in some way lost some of that passion. Uh, we have uh, become victims of a lot of the stuff that's happening out there, which is really the, uh, not only the marketization of education, commodification of education, but it's also the you know this this crisis of identity is what exactly is this field and I remember when Epstein gave this lecture this Nella lecture during this conference and I you know you can you can sense the room not not much at ease because they don't think this is actually relevant at all it's like your you know your your grandpa telling you back in the days when we were doing this you know 
But those things are important to keep in perspective because your grandpa is indeed a wise person, you know, right? Your grandma is wise, your grandpa is wise. I mean, they have lived experiences. So it's good to at least pay attention to some of it. I mean, you don't have to take it all, but at least pay attention to some of what they're saying. And this is, this is where the perspective is. These guys had done a lot of work in terms of really thinking theories and methods and thinking, uh, you know, what exactly constitutes good pieces of research and and what distinguishes us from everything else this is not about uh you know comparative and international education should be distinguished from just practitioner oriented pieces you know just the fact that you've traveled i mean we we talk about all these travelers tales and whatever is you know and things of the past and and we just talk about it in an introductory course of comparative education but we we do need to keep in mind that this stuff Today, we're actually endorsing some of these things that, you know, uh, just going abroad and doing some research constitutes a comparative and international education piece. Now, what I like about what's happening right now is what the, under the presidency of Andrea Sialumumba, we have seen a shift, or at least a very strong push towards a shift, and that is the epistemological shift. So, we have gone through this crisis of identity, and we have not ask ourselves very deep questions about who we are and what direction we are going. So with Andrea bringing the Ubuntu paradigm into uh, comparative and international education, it really raises very critical questions about who we are and what kinds of epistemologies we have endorsed and embraced and, and just quietly allowed it to come in and creep in and just, you know, so this is important. This, this is a very important crossroads in our, in our conversations. Is, who are we and how do we see ourselves in the world you know uh, so yes this is an epistemological time a time to talk about theories and, and methods again to revisit the methodological questions and revisit not the methodological questions in the way that Berdeau was looking at methodology uh, but to revisit the methodological questions in today's uh, context in the context of having alternative epistemologies and alternative methodologies also included in the field. So this is a good time for us to really uh, shape this and, and so I, I think we're in a good place uh, despite the crisis of identity maybe you know it's a good place to now make very serious commitments to saving the field from being completely lost in space. Well, José Cosa, thank you very much for joining Fresh Ed. Thank you very much, Will, for having me here. It's a pleasure. José Cosa, a visiting associate professor at the American University in Cairo. In the fall of 2016, he will join the faculty of Peabody College at Vanderbilt University as a senior lecturer. Next week, I speak with Simon Springer about de-schooling. Fresh Ed is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. You can subscribe to Fresh Ed on iTunes and follow the show on Twitter using the handle at Fresh Ed Podcast. The opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not CIES or the Globalization and Education SIG, which take no institutional positions. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Priming. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem.
and see you next week.